Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 166 of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for another interview episode where we seek out the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, I have the distinct pleasure of chatting with alcohol policy expert and recently published author Jarrett Dieterle, whose book, Give Me Liberty and Give Me a Drink, is a groundbreaking summary of the crazy alcohol laws that govern every nook and cranny of the American landscape. Whether we're talking about the surprising cities that allow drinking in public, shout out to Erie, Pennsylvania and Butte, Montana, or the states where you have to mix your cocktails behind a screen, looking at you, Utah, this book is a super accessible resource for contemporary legislation as well as a treasure trove of cocktail wisdom. But before we get too deep into the seriously backward rules that prohibit gas stations in Indiana from refrigerating their beer, let's take a little breather so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Southern 75, which you'll recognize from the ingredients as a little riff on the French 75. To make it, you'll need one and a half ounces of bourbon, three quarters of an ounce of lemon juice, three quarters of an ounce of simple syrup, six ounces of a good India pale ale, AKA IPA, and several dashes of orange bitters. We, of course, recommend our embitterment orange bitters. Combine all these ingredients, except the beer in a cocktail shaker with ice, shake vigorously for about 15 seconds, then strain into a highball glass over ice, top with your favorite IPA, Give it a gentle stir for incorporation purposes and garnish with a freshly expressed lemon twist. Any cocktail nerd will be familiar with the French 75, that classic developed at Harry's New York Bar in Paris, but you know what? This is a very American podcast episode, so let me read the blurb paired with this recipe in Jarrett's book. Quote, The tradition of getting absolutely hammered is as old as civilization itself. Commercial breweries date back to ancient Mesopotamia, proving that alcohol is essential to human achievement. But where there's good beer, there are always crappy beer laws. The Code of Hammurabi limited how much beer citizens could receive each day. And to this day, our right to crack open a cold one is subject to various restrictions. Until recently, Nebraska required brewers to physically hand off their beer to a distributor for a certain amount of time, known as an at-rest law, and then essentially buy it back in order to sell it at their own tap rooms. The law was mercifully reformed, but Nebraska still remains one of several states that completely prohibits breweries from directly sending their own beer to outside retail locations, even if they're right down the street. End quote. So, now that you've got yourself a cheeky classic cocktail riff and a small sample of the silly law that inspired it, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this wide-ranging and incredibly revelatory interview with Jarrett Dieterle, booze policy wonk and author of Give Me Liberty and Give Me a Drink, some of the topics we discuss include 
how Jarrett fused his career in alcohol policy with his passion for great drinks to generate a text that questions the inconsistencies of our fragmented nation's alcohol purchasing and consumption policies. Why I think it's important to frame most of these legislative questions in terms of a freedom versus security debate, otherwise figured as conservation versus risk, Jarrett does a great job of reframing this stance of mine by demonstrating how most of our nation's alcohol regulations do a poor job of optimizing for both freedom and security. And of course, we give some examples. Now, don't get us wrong, both Jarrett and I are both very outspoken advocates for responsible and healthy consumption by way of reasonable regulations. But as we'll demonstrate, there are a ton of regulations in our nation that don't even come close to being reasonable. And we, of course, show you some of the craziest ones that you might not even believe if you don't live in the jurisdictions where they're actually in place. We also talk about blue laws, alcohol control states, and the bizarre battles that poor lawmaking can create between industries that would otherwise coexist peacefully, like bars and restaurants and the alcohol producers who support them. But we're not just here to complain. Jarrett and I really dig into some of these laws, identify some of the faulty reasoning behind them, and lay bare some of the iniquities that we as U.S. citizens have the capacity to change. Finally, we conclude this episode by considering the contemporary legislative changes that have been rapidly morphing in the wake of the COVID-19 coronavirus and what these might mean for the future of alcohol legislation in the United States. That was a tough set of bullet points to craft, mostly because Jarrett leads us through a mushy maze of really partisan and super nuanced issues that you really can't take a firm stance on without crushing some of the nuance. And I know that sitting here talking about laws and regulations doesn't sound on the surface to be as exciting as talking about spirits and cocktails, but I think this is a really crucial time in our history to really consider the types of rules that we're making and what we're trying to accomplish with them. So with that, please enjoy this really important, slightly quirky, and deeply impactful conversation with alcohol policy expert, author, and friend, Jarrett Dieterle. Jarrett, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So before we jump into <laughs> the laws that govern uh, sometimes well, but most of the time poorly, the way uh, and quantity that we drink, why don't you uh, just introduce yourself to our listeners and uh, give us a little bit of background on you? Yeah, uh, well, I uh, study uh, alcohol policy uh, at uh, the R Street Institute, which is just a, a think tank in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, there's a lot of those in D.C., uh, but we're unique uh, in that we we have kind of a, a dedicated program that, that studies the alcohol industry and tries to figure out uh, how uh, it's being regulated currently and in what ways that could be improved uh, and, and streamlined, uh, ideally with, with the goal being to make life easier on, on producers and, and consumers uh, at the end of the day as well. Uh, and so we, uh, we, we do a lot of research and writing about that. That's what takes up most of my day. Um, and so I, I do a, a weekly newsletter based around it and, and actually have recently written a book about it. But, but yeah, that's kind of been uh, my focus, uh, particularly over the last uh, six to nine months as uh, the COVID pandemic has upended uh, alcohol and quite a bit, as I'm sure we'll talk about. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I tend to try and approach these types of unexpected situations as opportunities, you know, the the idea of the fire destroying and then making room for new growth. But 
you know, as somebody who runs a business, I also get the the, the massive disruption that it represents. And so, uh, we'll definitely. I think I think we definitely want to address some of the the changing legislative um, landscape towards the end of this conversation. But I think it would uh, it would probably benefit us to, to to lay a little bit of groundwork about some of these laws. So can, why don't you why don't you back us into that by talking about uh, the idea of the book, um, Give Me Liberty and Give Me a Drink, 65 Cocktails to Protest America's Most Outlandish Alcohol Laws. I've got that right here. Uh, so for our listeners, you may hear me flipping through some pages here. Uh, it's a really nice book. It's It feels good in your hands. I was just uh, actually uh, talking with uh, my co-founder Ethan Hall yesterday, and he was like, "Damn, this is a this is a nice feeling book," and and I agree with him. So talk talk us through the uh, the the concept, and then um, how you went about assembling this, because I, I imagine it, you know it, it, it's a little bit complicated to go through fifty states worth of regulations. Yeah, definitely. Well, and I appreciate the the kind words about about the book. Um, yeah, the original idea from it uh, stemmed from from just the obvious that I, that in in studying and researching and particularly talking to people in the industry, uh, it kind of hit me that it's not unique. It's not a one state problem. I, I happen to be based in Virginia, and, and our I think our alcohol laws are some of the the quirkiest and goofiest maybe in the country. But it really hit me that this is not a, a one state problem. It's a fifty state problem, and I wanted to kind of. Uh, make that message cohesive for people and and give people a kind of bite-sized accessible way to understand that. Uh, and when you work in policy, there's you know multiple ways of doing that. You can write a 30-page white paper that uh, maybe no one will read, or you can do that, which we've done plenty of that, but also try to find a more accessible way for, for people to kind of read and, and educate themselves, but also in, in a fun way. And so that was kind of the idea behind the book. And since it is alcohol, which is uh, inherently a, a topic that you can include things like cocktails, with it just seemed really natural to try to you know match a law from each state to show people that this happens everywhere and then have a, a cocktail recipe that oftentimes is inspired uh, by that law uh, just to make it fun but again to also kind of have a an educational takeaway component uh, from it too and, and then also explain a little bit the history and kind of why we've gotten to this system that is so uh, complicated that is so fragmented across 50 states uh, that has three layers from the federal government to the state governments, to the local governments, all having a, a hand uh, in in the pie, so to speak, when when it comes to how we regulate uh, uh, beverage alcohol. So that was the idea behind the book, and and just the the research was it was interesting. It it was actually stuff that I've compiled over kind of years. Every time I'd find a, a particularly you know quirky, weird law somewhere, I would always kind of chronicle it and keep a note about it. Um, and and I don't know, you know, what I didn't have the book in mind at that time, but I kind of just knew that it was something that it was probably worth tracking, and there might be some kind of a project you could base around it someday. Uh, and and we thought it'd be good again to feature one from each state just to show that this isn't a, a thing that's confined to certain geographical regions. A lot of people, I think, maybe assume it's in like Bible Belt states or something like that. And yes, they have that, but you know, there's Massachusetts bans happy hour, right? So it, it, it's all over the map, really, and just kind of show that to people. And, and the only thing that was a little bit uh, tricky is that so many states have duplicate laws. So it was kind of uh, this piece of the puzzle trying to figure out which state should I feature for which kind of quirky thing. Um, but, you know, it was it was fun. It, it, it was a uh, it's the kind of research project that's fun because uh, you learn a lot while doing it. Um, and and uh, also, you know, feel like you're you're doing something that has a purpose behind it. Mm, for sure, for sure. And and one thing that I, I do appreciate about the book is that it's 
it it takes a stance. I mean, you're, you're the whole thesis is wow, these are silly. Um, you know, obviously it's more complex than that, but but it's um, you know, it's interesting to to pick something up that that is very distinctively, at least in one sense, a reference work, but then have an underlying argument that unites that. Um, you know, it, it's uh, you know, the on, the only other thing I can think of that that does that in the cocktail space in an encyclopedia or reference format is Amy Stewart's The Drunken Botanist. And she's trying to make a way less difficult point, which is these are plants. Plants are cool. Uh, okay, great. Now organize it. Uh, your, your thesis is a little bit more contentious in that it, um, you know, you're, you're kind of giving us a sample of a bunch of crazy laws and, uh, and, and you're trying to put them next to one another in a way that makes us either change our mind about something or, you know, be at, at the very least more conscious consumers when we do have the chance to visit other places and, and experience their drinking cultures. Is that, is that kind of a decent snapshot of it? Yeah, no, that, that that's good. Yeah, I, I guess I was when you said that I was thinking you could maybe summarize my book as these are laws and they are bad, but <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but no, the the, the overall uh, uh, kind of thesis of it, I think you hit you hit the nail on the head. Um, yeah, it's interesting. People, I think, know at least conceptually of like some of the laws in their state around alcohol, but I don't think it's the type of thing they spend a ton of time talking about because this is so priced in over such a long period of time. People that are, you know, I was raised in Michigan and we're just, you know, used to in Michigan, you can go to a gas station and if they have a liquor license, you can pretty much get uh, beer, wine, and even distilled spirits at the gas station. And that's just something that you expect in Michigan. And then, you know, move to a place like Virginia or a place like, um, uh, you know, Pennsylvania, and all of a sudden you have, you know, government controlled retail stores. And that's so different. But the people in that state, I think, again, are just used to that for such a long time being part of, of their life. And and so for me, kind of having moved to a different state, that was when I first realized there was a way to kind of create cross border awareness, but then also to get people to just question things like, why is it that I can get every, pretty much every product under the sun delivered to my door in two days, sometimes two hours nowadays. But there's big, vast swaths of the United States where you can't get delivery alcohol or especially interstate uh, shipment of alcohol. And, and it's stuff that, again, I think people are at least conceptually aware of in the back of their head, but don't often ask the question, why? Why is that the case? What's the history behind that? Is that Does that make sense? Or should we just uh, try to find a way to treat alcohol like we do a lot of other products that we can get delivery uh, to, to our doors for. So it, it, it's all kind of trying to take this thing that I think people are background aware of, but uh, kind of uh, systematize it and, and make it a cohesive uh, thing. That they're starting to ask the question, why? Why do these things exist and, and do we need them? Yeah, I, I think that's a great point because we're obviously rethinking a lot about the way we do things these days. So I, I think uh, to be able to prime people with that question and, and keep it top of mind is, I think, very useful. And it's something... Um, that I notice a lot of, um, whether it's a distiller or a bartender, people who are trying to um, both be compliant with regulations that are popping up now, but also do what's best for them when the people who are making the rules aren't necessarily thinking of what's best for them. They're thinking what's best for people in general to keep them safe. So I, I think it's a useful conversation to have. And I'd like to maybe back us way up to the to the beginnings of our country um, and, and kind of maybe work our way through history a little bit here. Um, but 
I want to I want to give us almost like a little tuning fork moment here because when, whenever I I, I think in, about legislation, whenever I have conversations with people about legislation in the United States, a couple of things always ring true. Um, one is the freedom versus security debate. Like whenever whenever you're talking about a an issue that feels political, where you can kind of like describe a, a liberal stance uh, and describe a conservative stance. To me, the, the the big trope that that's on display there is like, all right, where do you stand on the security versus freedom debate? Do you value freedom more than you value security or do you value security more than you value um, liberty and, and risk, perhaps? You know, we might associate those two things together. So one question that I always like to ask when I talk about this, and it's a, it's a very weird question, it's not in the questions I sent you, but is, um, what are you afraid of? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. Another way of, of uh, that I often get is what uh, laws are, are, are good in the alcohol space, which is, uh, is a little bit ancillary to what you said, but I think is a, is it gets towards a similar thing, but, but what, what I think um, is the fear and what is happening is that we are uh, restricting people's freedom, but not necessarily advancing the security at the same time. So we, in that, that dual mandate mission, I think, unfortunately, we're kind of failing on both fronts. And the result of that, what, what the cost of that is, what the fear that uh, I have and a lot of people in the industry have is that that's kind of hurting their businesses um, for no reason, really. Not, you know, we want laws to protect public health and safety or security, if, if you if you want to use that word, as you said, um, and those are important. And alcohol is something that needs some regulation to it. You know, we don't, that has negative externalities sometimes, you know, drunk driving obviously is the most prolific example, but the people have alcohol abuse uh, disorders. Oftentimes we see in uh, other countries that uh, have uh, much more um, unregulated systems, a, a huge uh, market of illicit alcohol. It can be very dangerous, can be poisonous sometimes to people. Um, people oftentimes very get very hurt from illicit alcohol if it's made incorrectly. So I, I think that there is obvious uh, public health and safety uh, goals and government interests there. And I think what's the unfortunate thing is that many of the laws we have, their kind of putative reasoning is to protect public health and safety, but they don't accomplish that. And they have uh, a tremendous amount of costs and collateral damage that they're creating along the way. So, you know, you can find many examples of this, but, uh, you know, things like having a, you know, reasonable inspection re regime for what, you know, which exists for uh, distilleries, for example, you know, make sure that they are not putting some terrible product in our bourbon or poisoning us or something, you know, that that is an example of a good law that has compliance costs, but reasonable and appropriate compliance costs, because we need to, to make sure that, that the public is being protected. But things like, you know, telling a uh, distiller that they um, can be arbitrarily limited in how many uh, the size cocktails they can serve in their serving room um, and, uh, you know, really getting into the nitty gritty of, of kind of uh, how many bottle sales they can have per day for people for off-premise stuff. That, that I think, has uh, a almost non-existent uh, connection to, to health and safety. Uh, Over-serving laws, of course, are, are still important. But, uh, you know, even, even just off-premise bottle sales, for example, um, why can some places you only sell five instead of, you know, 15 if someone wants to buy a case and they're from out of state and they're going to bring it home and consume that over a really long period of time? There's not necessarily a public health and safety uh, interest there. So I, I think that that's a really 
good question. And I think that um, the fear is, is that we're kind of uh, in these these dual mandates that we have where we're always trying to you know find the right balance between security and freedom. I think alcohol is a place that is accomplishing neither oftentimes in our antiquated legal system. And that's why it's actually, I think, an issue that's pretty bipartisan, because I think people on both sides have been able to recognize that and say that, hey, this isn't, this isn't helping anyone right now. It's a, it, it, it's an example of, of, a, uh, of a 21st century marketplace that is being governed by rules from a long time ago that, that aren't really achieving those goals anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about those laws from a long time ago, because obviously they were made for a reason. And I, I do agree with you, you know, when it comes to uh, schooling, one of the things that I've been saying a lot uh, leading up to this pandemic, and, and now it's sort of being put to the test is the fact that we're, uh, we're, we're putting uh, 2020 software into uh, a system like a physical system that is that was designed in the 1940s 1950s, you know, with the public school system kind of that, that arose after World War Two. Um, you know, when there was all of a sudden a lot of kids and we need to find places to teach them. So, you know, I, if you don't think that running contemporary software on an ancient device is a good idea, well, the same thing can be said for the alcohol industry. So, um, you know, I come from Massachusetts and uh, that state, you know, we've already referenced it. You can't have happy hour there. Uh, Boohoo, Massachusetts. Um, and uh, there's there's also some, some other laws that, that we would refer to as blue laws. Um, I don't know if you've come across that term and can explain it and maybe how that's related to um, one might say the, the Puritan background of uh, at least the, the, the eastern coast of the U.S. for, for many in many uh, instances. Yeah, no, but blue laws are, uh, are are one of the most famous examples of kind of uh, things that we derived from from long ago, and they 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 do exist outside alcohol. They're much rarer outside alcohol, but uh, in the alcohol context, they uh, usually prevent the sale of alcohol either the entire day or part of the day. On Sunday, usually is the day that uh, because of the uh, uh, the Sabbath and uh, of, of people going to church, um, and as seen as the time where you you don't drink um, or you she shouldn't have uh, access to. To, to purchase it, and 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 so yeah, that 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 still exists in a lot of states. A lot of states have reformed it a lot. Now it oftentimes will be like an hour restriction. You'll see like not before noon on Sunday, which has now led to the so-called brunch bills popping up everywhere, where basically they're trying to legalize restaurants being able to serve you know bottomless mimosas or whatever uh, uh, during brunch. Um, and and so that yeah, that's a perfect example of of laws that were uh, made a long time ago. That at least public health and safety wise, uh, there's I think a, a tenuous um, connection to to whether they're really accomplishing anything. I mean, sometimes you will see arguments that uh, it, it protects public health and safety and prevents uh, you know drunk driving and stuff. But then why is it you know on six other days of the week why, why is it okay then to be able to to purchase alcohol? Um, and then in the happy hour uh, example that again you referenced with. Massachusetts is actually a great example of what, of what we were just talking about, just to back up of kind of the security versus uh, versus freedom uh, thing. That that actually is an example of law that has not been around terribly long. It was in 1984 that Massachusetts implemented that after a, a couple of uh, high profile uh, drunk driving accidents in in the state of, of Massachusetts. And, and so that was kind of the theory. It was a public health and safety justification behind it uh, to make people safer. Uh, but in the time since they've done that, they don't really ha there's no discernible pattern in their data that there's less drunk driving instances now in Massachusetts and a lot of other states that do allow happy hours. So 
you know, I think that there is a kind of duty to look at whether the uh, the idea that you're trying to advance with legislation is actually accomplishing these, you know, public health and safety goals that you've set out. And if it's not, I think it's fair to say then, you know, we, we tried this, but it uh, wasn't accomplishing our goals. Maybe there's a better way to address those goals, a more nuanced uh, approach. Um, and, and, you know, again, it, what, what it's caused in Massachusetts is, is hurting a lot of bars that would obviously be able to like to have a happy hour program uh, without really providing any public health and safety benefits. So it's actually a great example that you mentioned that I wanted to back up to because it really hit that, that point really well. But, uh, but yeah, to, to go back to what you originally said, blue, blue laws are, uh, those are, th- that's an example of, of one that's been a long time ago um, and, and kind of really derived from our, our prohibitionary uh, heritage, which, which the bulk of these laws are like that. The Massachusetts happy hour one is, is kind of an exception to that. The bulk of these do derive from that, from that early time period and have stayed on the books until present day. Yeah. I mean, prohibition is obviously the single most important event, uh, regarding the, the current system we have, whether you're talking about the three tier, uh, distribution system, which I'd love to love to circle back to before we wrap up the interview. Um, cause I think that has a lot to do with the laws that are changing today, 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 but it also, you know, I, I, I personally can see a thread that goes all the way from, you know, the founding of, of our country with, you know, people who, you know, were, they were, they called themselves Puritans, right? They were, you know, when we, when we, when we cite puritanical laws, well, you know, we're, we're kind of gesturing back to a heritage of, you know, these people who came over because, uh, well, they, they weren't able to exercise their agendas, uh, in a way that they felt happy with in Europe. So they came here and, and set up systems here. Um, and I can trace, you know, a through line all the way through, um, you know, going to the um, the temperance movement and uh, the anti-saloon league, all this stuff. There's there's this distinct thread of um, kind of anti-booziness that runs straight through our, our history. And I find it I find it tricky because if you read any of these books, I'm thinking um, Derek Brown's Spirits, Sugar, Water, Bitters, uh, for example, these books, they make a point to identify how boozy America is. So how how do these two opposing forces kind of like still stay so influential, right? Like I, I can't really separate our distinct booziness from this other weird impulse to just try and regulate the hell out of it almost for the sake of regulating. Yeah, no, that I I do that in my book too. I talk about you know our founding mothers and and fathers. You know, really, they compared to us Americans, they frankly drank their faces off pretty much. And, and even even a pure you know, John Adams is kind of like the maybe canonical Puritan that you think of, and and he you know drank hard cider for breakfast every single day of his life and thought that it was a healthy thing to do. And then he would go for a five mile uh, hike afterwards. Is how he started his days. Um, but you're right. There's always been this dichotomy throughout American history. Uh, the Whiskey Rebellion was maybe one of the early manifestations of that. Um, the It was really interesting kind of situation. Obviously, Washington was the president uh, at that time. Um, Hamilton was the treasury secretary and the architect of the whiskey tax. Um, I know we're not supposed to speak ill of Hamilton now because of the musical and everything, but uh, he very much saw... Uh, whiskey stills as an opportunity for raising revenue. Uh, and they implemented that system. And it, it was interesting. They kind of created this uh, a really, in some ways, a markably striking uh, a 
connection that I think may have some resonance today, although very different political issues uh, of kind of this uh, elite government um, officials uh, like Washington and Hamilton, who themselves drank. Washington later owned his own distillery, a huge distillery after after retirement. And then these more rural uh, backcountry, more towards the West uh, settlers that were small farmers back then. Almost every single farm in America had a still. They would distill their whiskey because it was much easier to transport whiskey across the mountains than it was to transport, you know, but wagon loads of corn or wheat or whatever it was, uh, or rye. Um, and, and, and so that immediately created this, this clash between, between government, uh, and alcohol. And we've really had a series of those things happen throughout history since, since the whiskey rebellion. And, and, you know, as I mentioned, our, our, our founders were largely in favor of alcohol, but there were some like Dr. Benjamin Rush, who, uh, was very against it. He wrote one of the early treatises uh, against it. Um, and, and then once that kind of fast forwarded to uh, the, the early mid 1800s, there started to be at the same time this rise of, of uh, the temperance movement uh, and more re religious revivalism was happening around that time. Um, and there, there became this real push against particularly hard uh, alcohol distilled spirits. Uh, for a while, there's kind of this distinction between beer and wine being, you know, not as high ABV and safer. And then, you know, uh, distilled spirits were dangerous, but eventually it became all alcohol. And uh, that that eventually accelerated a couple decades and then got joined by the uh, uh, progressive movement at the time, which was trying to find ways in their opinion to kind of better society. There was this idea that a lot of uh, uh, people, particularly men, uh, and this is true to a degree at that time, were uh, taking their daily wages instead of bringing them home to the family, were going to the saloon after work, spending all of them, becoming riotously, riotously drunk uh, and creating a lot of kind of public uh, uh, scourge in the streets uh, that was uh, considered considered undesirable. So all these forces, you know, early puritanical forces, uh, uh, religious uh, revivalism, um, and then uh, uh, kind of the, the progressive uh, movement as we move towards the 1800s kind of coalesced and more and more states and local governments started going dry. So it really started at the, the state and local level. It was a long road to prohibition. It didn't, didn't just happen overnight, which I think a lot of people miss. But as that happened, we started uh, kind of um, raising the stakes on the, I guess, if you will, on the uh, uh, clashing between uh, between government and, uh, and, and alcohol. It started as taxing and then kind of raised to eventually to the level we're trying to ban it, uh, its production outright. Uh, and that, that, that is, you, you nailed it. I mean, we've had that strain throughout our entire history. I, I joke in the book that you almost say like alcohol and government are frenemies because, you know, they, government wants it to exist so it can tax it obviously, but uh, at the same time, it, they've, they've just clashed over and over again. Uh, you'll see it, you know, throughout, throughout history. Yeah. And a lot of those clashes, I mean, the whiskey rebellion being, you know, probably the first one are, are somewhat ironic, right? Our founding distiller, George Washington, going to tell a bunch of farmers that they can't distill. Uh, we've got, uh, you know, uh, one of the, one of the features of your book that I really enjoy are the little interspersed sections where you'll highlight or profile people, um, spirited patriots, and then you've got, um, you know, bootleggers and, and rum runners in there as well. Uh, but uh, uh, George, uh, was it George Cassidy, the, the man in the green hat, right? So, you know, while at, while all these people are, are busy banning alcohol, you have, you know, literally a dedicated booze uh, bootlegger for politicians on Capitol Hill who are doing this. So, uh, you know, the, it, it, it's funny when, when things get most heated and most intense, I think you can almost always find like a, a piece of like stunning irony in there. Maybe not in the moment, but certainly like once we're able to step back and kind of analyze history, you know, things tend to be strikingly ironic. So I wonder if you might uh, take us through 
some of the some of the sillier laws and I one of the questions that I asked is to see to see if I could get you to pick two or three laws that you think are probably the just the silliest for for silliness sake uh, and then also two or three of the laws that you think are doing the most harm and then maybe we can talk about those we'll talk about the the cocktails you paired with them because that's the other wonderful feature of this book and then maybe that'll allow us to get get into a, a more in-depth discussion about where we stand today yeah no definitely um yeah it, it, it's actually a good distinction between the ones that are the silliest and doing the most harm oftentimes they do correlate sometimes uh, uh they don't um sometimes it's more of a, a, a systemic issue that's creating more harm versus kind of one of these one-off goofy ones um uh, it, i always mention when when asked that question uh indiana has uh it, it's uh, infamous at least in alcohol policy circles uh, uh their warm beer law it's called so uh, uh convenience stores gas stations in the state uh, are allowed to sell beer, um, but they actually cannot put it in a refrigerator uh, and sell it cold. So it has to be room temperature. And as long as it, it does not make its way onto ice or into any kind of a, a cooling device, uh, it can be sold. Um, they can sell wine, uh, white wine, for example, and chill that, but they cannot do it with beer. Um, and then liquor stores in the state, which is a separate licensee in the state of Indiana, there's less of them, but they can sell it cold. Uh, so th that's, I always find that really entertaining. It's sad, but uh, for the retailers themselves, they've, they've tried very hard to get that changed because they would much rather be able to sell people cold beer uh, if you wanted to grab it on the way to a barbecue or something like that than, than warm beer. Uh, but it's also entertaining in the sense that, you know, what is that exactly trying to accomplish? You have other stores in the state that are allowed, allowed to sell cold beer. You have the same stores being allowed to sell cold wine. Uh, and, and so it's one of those things where it's like the, the justification is, is somehow public health and safety, but it's just, it doesn't pass the smell test. It's so obvious that it's just like that, that is not, that is a goofy law. The only reason it's really uh, persisting in Indiana is because the, the liquor store licensees, you know, lobby to keep it that way. They'd rather be the only guys in town that can sell the cold beer. Right. So uh, I think that's a very good uh, microcosm of a lot of the things you see in different States uh, with alcohol. Another one that often uh, gets pointed out by even people, you know, beyond, beyond me and my book is uh, Utah's uh, uh, Zion Curtain, it's called. Um, they've tried to reform it over the years a little bit, but it essentially boils down to there's a barrier, some kind of a partitioner barrier needs to be in between the bartender who's mixing your drink at a bar and then the actual people, customers on the outside. In, in its most strict uh, uh, version, you can't see what's going on. Um, and it actually uh, uh, creates a, a wall of separation, uh, literally between between your cocktail being made and, uh, and when you ultimately get to, to drink it. Uh, again, another example, you know, all 49 other states don't have that. Um, you know, what what public health and safety justification is is really there for that? Uh, probably none that I've ever heard or at least had a convincing argument made to me. So that that, that would be another one I'd mention uh, under, under the kind of craziest, uh, most bizarre category. As far as harmful, um, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of things you could pick. I think that, uh, I always highlight the Washington uh, state uh, example. Their distilleries there can only serve, if you come in uh, on premise to do a tasting, they only can serve up to two ounces of, of their spirits per customer per day. Uh, and 
that that is very tough for distilleries there for several reasons. Uh, one is that a lot of them like to make a cocktail, for example, with their spirit or do a flight of maybe one ounce pours. And there's really not much product you can taste there. Uh, the justification being, of course, they don't want people to be overserved, although there's still overserving laws there already on the books. And the breweries and wineries down the street can serve you as many beer, much beer and wine as you want. And you can, you know, drink a uh, 12% Imperial IPAs like they're like they're going out of style at the uh, at the brewery down the street. But uh, you can't have a, uh, uh, you know, two cocktails, for example, at, at a Washington uh, distillery that really hurts and, and bites the distilleries because small craft distillers, you know, they're they're not buying Super Bowl ads that that's not how they're getting the name of their product and 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 the awareness of their product out in the marketplace. They're doing it through word of mouth. And the way that's done is that, you know, I go to a Washington State distillery and try try, uh, you know, some of their whiskey. And I think that it's really great stuff. And then I tell you maybe, and you say, oh, dang, that's interesting. And I'm going to go try it. And then you try it. And then you tell two more friends and it kind of spreads that way. And so if you only can go in and taste one or two of their products instead of three or four, then that is just uh, limited the amplifying effect of them to be able to, to spread the word of mouth about, about their spirits. And a similar thing happens with control states. Uh, Virginia's an example of that, that the only place distillers here can sell their uh, distilled spirits is in uh, Virginia government ABC stores. Um, and, and they're all government run, operated and staffed. And they they are the ones that determine what products are going to carry. So I know a lot of distillers here, for example, that only have like one of their products that's really in all the ABC stores because they either uh, can't get the other products accepted by the a ABC store or uh, figure it's not uh, worth kind of having to go through the machinations necessary to pitch it to the ABC uh, and get it accepted. And, and that's really tough. If the ABC accepts none of your stuff, then you effectively are locked out of the retailing market in Virginia other than, than people coming to your actual on-premise distillery. So that, that's just, you know, tremendously uh, harms... Uh, harms uh, producers, in that case, distillers of, of alcohol in the private market. If one liquor store doesn't want to carry your stuff, you can go to the nine others in town and try to pitch your product. But you can actually be locked out of an entire state's marketplace in your own backyard and in places like Virginia. So uh, th th that kind of um, kind of overarching uh, systemic market uh, uh, kind of controlled market capture, I think, is is very, very harmful. And, and, and I always mention that as kind of uh, maybe one of the best uh, examples of, of how high the stakes can be uh, for, for producers sometimes uh, when, when it gets to how their, their states regulate alcohol. Yeah, it's so tricky, man. Um, control states are, you know, one of, one of the other features that I love uh, about this book is that you've got a really nice map. You got two really important maps. One of them is uh, a map of, you know, kind of control states versus, you know, you kind of like go through the various levels of, of control and, you know, you phrase it as, as the, the, the good, the bad, and the, or the, the, the almost good, the bad, and the ugly, and, and so forth. And then, of course, you have another map of uh, places where you can drink in public. And so I, I loved uh, the fun fact of like being like, oh, look, Erie, Pennsylvania, you can go and drink. Like, I, all right, Las Vegas, okay. New Orleans, okay, I've been there for Tales of the Cocktail. I know you can get it to go cup. Um, mm -hmm. But like Erie, Pennsylvania, like and Indianapolis, Indiana, right? You're just citing the warm beer law there. But, and you know, then you, on the other hand, you've got Indianapolis where you can drink in public. So it's, um, it's that that was uh, a really fun way to uh, to relate to some of these laws. And I, I'm a maps guy. I love I love looking at things on a map. So that was uh, super interesting to me. But getting back to what you were saying about, 
you know, control states and, and, you know, what they do, you know, a couple examples that you just listed from those silly and harmful laws really actually relate pretty closely to one another. Because when you're talking about the warm beer law, for example, well, okay, what you're creating is some sort of weird caste system in the marketplace where you're like, there's there's this assumption, right? So like, let's say that I'm a lawmaker and I was about drafting up this law. And let's say I were to look at, what is it? Uh, gas stations, gas stations and convenience stores. And convenience stores, yep. And say, okay, well, all right. I'm gonna look at these and say, all right, gas stations, convenience stores, okay. And then we've got this set of like liquor stores over here that sell wine and spirits. Like, all right, well, who is probably better qualified to sell these well oh okay obvious answer liquor stores great so so here here's an easy problem you know we can we can um probably by restricting this license or this ability to sell cold beer to liquor stores it seems like i'm giving somebody with the correct type of authority a right to do something and prohibiting that ability from someone who maybe doesn't know how to do it now I'm probably willing to bet that at the time this law went on the books, probably the people that the type of people that ran convenience stores and gas stations looked very different from the types of people who owned and ran liquor stores. They were probably browner. They were probably less wealthy in the gas station convenience store example. So um, we don't even need to get into the systemic racism that, that's inherent there. But if you simply look at, OK, maybe we should just give this right to uh, to uh, liquor stores. It's like, well. Are, is it that liquor stores are better at it or is it just that there's more consequences if they're not if they're not carding if they're not doing all of the right things to keep people safe it's like you could simply just enforce that better at at convenience stores and gas stations you could simply just make sure that people are doing all of the due diligence and then allow them to sell cold beer but it was this sort of like well let's just give some people the right and prevent other people from having that right I think that's a perfect example of the sort of uh, disconnect. Security is not being um, optimized. Freedom is not being optimized and everyone is being inconvenienced. And and then you get that further economic incentive for the people who do get the bonus to try and keep that bonus. And that's exactly what I saw uh, recently with all of our friends in uh, especially in Maryland, actually, the Maryland Distillers Guild actually did just did some really great work in getting some of the tasting room restrictions that are very similar to the tasting room restrictions that that currently still exist in Virginia to be overturned in Maryland. So now I can go to uh, my friends over at Tenth Ward Distilling in Frederick, and uh, they can shake me up a full size cocktail, and I can enjoy that. And then maybe I'll you know have a pour of their spirits as well. Um, they, but the key is full size cocktail. They can actually have a cocktail bar. Um, and when I was attending, I actually attended some of the Maryland Distillers Guild meetings as sort of like support staff, since I work with a lot of these distillers and I like to, to keep up with, with what's going on and to help them, uh, whenever I can and with what I'm doing. And, and so, you know, Jamie Winden got up and, and, uh, explained just exactly why they were raising money to lobby people. And the reason they were raising money to lobby people is that bars and restaurants were actively lobbying against distillery tasting rooms to be able to. So it's like, yes, were they successful? Yes. Um, is it good that they were successful? Absolutely. I don't think that they're really hurting bars and restaurants because if you're a strict capitalist, then, you know, just do a better, offer a better product and, and you shouldn't have any room to complain. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm really hoping that 
by giving some of these examples, we're illuminating for people the sort of perverse incentives that poor lawmaking creates uh, the perverse incentive to like get restaurants and bars to lobby against uh, distillers when in fact in other segments of their business these restaurants and bars are reliant on distillers to bring good craft products in through of course in most cases the three-tier system so yep. it's um it is if you really look at the ins and outs and the day-to-day -day decisions that you know a lot of these people whether they're bartenders distillers um, retail uh, store owners have to make you get a sense of just how kind of cross crisscross these these signals get. It's hard to tell if you're being helped or hurt sometimes, and sometimes they get you coming and going. Um, yep, no, that's absolutely true. Yeah, it's uh, I've analogized it. It creates this this situation where it's kind of a war of all against all. Sometimes, or like almost a circular firing squad type setup, and. And it, it, it's interesting because, you know, as you mentioned, the the craft spirit world is highly collaborative. Um, I mean, highly. One of the most collaborative industries probably and in creative industries that, that we've probably seen. I mean, collab, collabs as they're called now, you know, are everywhere, right? Um, and it, it, Virginia is an example where, you know, the, the brewer, the micro uh, uh, craft brewers and the craft distillers get along great. But uh, in Virginia, it's oftentimes the uh, the wholesaler level of of beer wholesalers that really spend a lot of the lobbying power to uh, you know make sure that that some of the distillery uh, on premise uh, tasting stuff stays the way it is and doesn't uh, change because they feel like that would affect their their bottom line. But when you have a system that is uh, as antiquated and locked into place for as long as alcohol has been, you immediately create reliance interests on that, and you have created little carved out portions of the market that businesses essentially uh, exist because of. You see that uh, oftentimes Wisconsin's a good example with their exclusive territories and other states have this too for uh, for beer wholesalers. You're saying that there's a certain territory where only this wholesaler can supply the beer to. And so you've just created a bunch of little mini like fiefdom monopolies there just by virtue of that law existing years ago. And then there's been decades and decades and decades of reliance interest on that. Um, and and that, that's uh, the cost of, of how the cookies crumbled with, with our alcohol system. And also what's made it so difficult to get even small changes to be changed. I think if you explain to most people that the uh, distillers in Maryland had to uh, form a kind of a group and uh, actually fundraise money around that just to be able to do something like serve a full-size cocktail. I think they would be kind of surprised about that. I think they're used to some of the lobbying stuff happening at, at, uh, at, at kind of like a, a bigger industry versus bigger industry type uh, lobbying. And, and that's not really the case. Uh, you you it's, it's become the situation where the small guys have had to try to band together to get moderate changes because we've locked in the system that everyone relies on and oftentimes has built businesses around. Um, and, and oftentimes I agree with you. I think that the changes aren't really affecting those businesses as much as I think they're going to, but that's what their concern is. And they want to try to, to block that out and prevent access uh, to that segment of the marketplace. So I think you nailed, you, you hit the nail on the head with that hundred percent. Yeah. It's, it's something that obviously I've paid more attention to over the past several years as I've, I've worked with so many of these folks. Um, you know, one, one good thing for, uh, Virginia is that our friend Scott Harris from Kentucky Creek Distilling Company recently, um, sort of joined a, a group that was formed by the governor to, to hopefully try to, uh, modernize the, the way these laws work in Virginia. So, 
um, it's exciting. Hopefully, you know, unfortunately for your book, you might need to, to make some, uh, some revisions here, uh, when you're ready to release a second edition. But, uh, I, I think it's, you know, uh, I, I think that's a good sacrifice to have to make is, uh, you know, let's get some better laws in Virginia. Uh, I, 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 I want to see some laws or some rather some states that really take take the lead in this. I mean, Massachusetts has done a decent job recently. They've they've really relaxed the ability to uh, purchase alcohol in grocery stores, for example. Uh, but in order to get that done, there's there's still a little bit of silliness. It's almost like we're clinging to the dregs of some of that because you have to check out twice. You have to have two transactions. And that's also something in your book that you've got. You, you mentioned we have many states where you have to, you know, even if you're in the same building, you have to like, all right, well, I've got my I've got my milk and eggs. All right. Swipe the card. Go out. Get a receipt. Go go out to the parking lot. Go in the other door. That's the same building that they just had to construct a wall to separate the liquor from uh, the, the groceries. And now I swipe second transaction, same, same company, same uniform. It's just, you know, uh, and then there's another, another law. I can't remember exactly which state in your book this was, but, uh, you can only purchase a certain number of bottles or a certain amount of alcohol in a given transaction, but there were no limits to the number of transactions you could do. So really the, the cap on what you can buy is how many times you're willing to go in and out to the trunk of your car. Yeah. Yeah. That was Pennsylvania. Yeah. Yeah. With their restaurants, uh, you can buy six packs from restaurants and bars there to go actually. Uh, but then, yeah, it's like two six packs at a time and then you can just keep going back in as many times as you want to. So yeah, no, it is a hundred percent true. Yeah. And there, there has been people often also will kind of wonder, has there been examples of states that have been forward thinking in this? And, you know, there has, again, I think the progress has been uh, very slow over time. Um, uh, the kind of recent, uh, maybe exception to that TBD is, has been some of the changes we've seen with, with COVID, which we can get into, but, uh, even throughout, you know, history, there has been examples of, uh, good reforms in recent history that I, I think have actually had a really direct impact on, on how we understand craft, craft alcohol today. I always mention, uh, the example of, of craft beer. A lot of people that really follow beer world know, um, about, uh, the legalization of homebrewing in, in 79 or president Jimmy Carter, which, uh, brought uh, a lot of people out of the shadows and, and started kind of thinking about opening up, you know, commercial breweries, but then also key is again, a lot of people in, in the beer world know was the, uh, brew pub, uh, they're called brew pub. Uh, reforms starting uh, mostly in the West Coast with California, Washington State, Oregon, um, some places like Michigan were early leaders and then kind of just spreading across the country. And before that, you as a production brewer couldn't really just bring people on premise and do what we all do today, which is go to the local brewery and enjoy the, the, the tap room there. And those two things, real, those legal reforms are uh, a huge parts of of the reason that we have such a vibrant craft beer boom today, um, and so there are examples of you know th th in our recent history of legislatures sitting down and saying, do we need th this? prohibition against something as simple as having uh, your production facility in a tasting room in the same place. Does that make any sense? Um, and if not, getting rid of it and then creating a lot of good in the world, which has, of course, been all the jobs, which the craft uh, beer industry has produced, which which everyone talks about that, but also wonderful community benefits. I mean, a lot of, you know, I always joke that my local brewery here in um, Ashland, just out, outside of Richmond, hosts everything from, you know, Bible studies to like pickle clubs, like, you know, it's, it's created community, I think, in a lot of places um, and, and because become important community hubs. Uh, so th there are examples of it happening. And again, it just takes the kind of focus 
and recognition of uh, both government officials and people in the industry to try to work together. And it's not always easy. Oftentimes they are very antagonistic, but it has happened in our in our recent past. Yeah, I, th- that's a great point. I mean, the brew pub legislation is huge. And and even if you just take that word pub, you know, what does it mean? It means public house. A pub is a public house. It's there for the public. It, it, and it, it is supposed to provide a set of amenities that are perhaps less tangible than uh, what we expect today. You know, to, for us today, a, a bar or a pub is a place where you stop in for a drink and maybe a bite. Uh, back back in the early days of our country, these were places where you had room and board. These are places where you could, you know, uh, get uh, get your horse fed and stop for the night, have a bed, have a have a beer and a meal for for dinner, and then wake up the next morning and then maybe have your hard cider with your breakfast and then be on your way. Um, they were originally huge public amenities. There were places where you went for news. There were places where you went. Um, you know, to meet with specific groups of people. That's why, you know, they became such a hotbed for political graft in the in the mid to late 1800s, you know, because there were just people who were there and could be influenced by 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 liquor. Uh, so it's it's I really think it's important to to think of as, you know, you can say breweries, uh, but also distilleries as, as uh, places where people come together. I think that's that's one of the intangibles that I think is overlooked in a lot of legislation. Okay, so I, I think you've given us like a really good way to think about a lot of these laws, no matter where you are, uh, just by kind of going through our history and then also talking about some of the good, bad and ugly laws that, that we do have to face and, and the way that those were kind of implemented and the rationale behind them, which is still to this day often problematic. But uh, I want to focus now on, on what's happening, especially with uh, the, the shipping and receiving of alcohol and, and maybe to go cocktails uh, also as, as a little rider on that. Uh, now that we're dealing with obviously the, the quarantine, COVID nineteen, coronavirus, um, what have you been seeing in general um, when it comes to the ability to ship and receive alcohol? Because I myself have received several bottles in in the past week. Yeah, it is is led to uh, a a large rethinking, at least temporarily, um, which we can get into of of the ability to. Uh, deliver uh, directly to uh, consumers' doors uh, different kinds of, of alcohol uh, products. I mean, whether it's from distilleries, getting a, a fifth of whiskey, or, or whether it's getting uh, you know a, a case or two from the local brewery, or as you referenced, uh, even restaurants now uh, getting into uh, to go cocktail game. Um, you can get you know a round of margaritas with uh, uh, you know the the meal you get from from your local restaurant, and uh, it, it has been really interesting. Most of it has taken place. Uh, in intrastate, which is you know inside the state, uh, not across state lines, um, which is a whole different uh, ball game when you start going across state lines. But uh, a lot of states, I think it's up to over thirty now. Um, states have some version of to-go alcohol, to-go cocktails, uh, uh, to-go alcohol delivery laws. Um, and the obvious, you know, impetus for that is that you know where people are trying to quarantine uh, in place and are trying to you know socially distance and, and stay away from crowded areas. And early on, a lot of places were shut entirely uh, in, in phase one. 
of, uh, of the different emergency orders. And so, you know, really the only way to get access to those products was through some kind of a, a shipping delivery mechanism. Um, and, and, and that's what happens. And I think that a couple states now have, it's, it's been interesting and people like me, I think have been screaming into the void, uh, for, you know, years kind of wondering why, why that didn't exist already. Um, and then all of a sudden it did exist at least temporarily. And then we've seen a couple state, uh, legislatures that have said, well, maybe this could continue to exist. You know, maybe this is a good idea. Iowa became uh, first in the nation state, at least uh, in recent times here to, to pass a uh, to-go uh, cocktail law. Ohio's considering similar legislation. Uh, Michigan extended uh, their to-go cocktail law for, for five years. New York's trying to uh, get through a two-year extension of uh, delivery, uh, to-go and delivery alcohol. Um, so, it's definitely been a uh, uh, an early signs are there that it, that it could be a game changer as far as being able to get more of those products delivered to your door. I think that the two things, first of all, I'll have to see how many states actually go through it. We have a handful now. How many are going to actually do the legislative work to make it permanent? It's easy for a governor at the stroke of a pen to do something in an emergency order, but that's temporary. The second question is going to be whether that will will be able to then take that inside the state, intrastate market of shipping and then will that be expanded to interstate across state lines and once you get into that you immediately get into a whole host of complexities that involve uh, supreme court cases from uh, decades uh, ago uh, to uh, a bunch of um, uh, you know tax issues to a bunch of uh, different uh, hodgepodge of state laws one state treats shipments different than another does that will be the next big question uh, wine uh, shipments from wineries. Of course, everyone's very familiar with wine clubs and, and most states allow you to get wine shipped to your door directly from wineries. But in large part, if you're getting uh, distilled spirits or beer shipped to you, it's very hard to do in most states across state lines. And so that's going to be the real next question is whether uh, an interstate shipment market uh, starts to spring up and how that comes about. I think that's a really succinct way of, of putting a very complex question. Uh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's right on. Uh, and I'll be honest, there are some definite flaws with the way this is, you know, it's, it, it's rolling out, but, uh, you know, both of the packages that I received a couple days ago required a signature and, uh, they just left them. I live in an eight condo unit in DC. They just left them right on the, on the porch. So, you know, if I were somebody looking to red, uh, to regulate, I would look at that and say, oh yeah, this is the system not working. There's bottles of liquor just sitting on a doorstep. Any kid could just walk up to those boxes, grab them and, uh, you know, be in, in big trouble in, in no time. So yep. uh, I listen, it's not that I'm not sympathetic to the, the need for uh, reasonable health and safety measures. I mean, I would have much preferred if that person had actually come to my door and, you know, done, done what the side of the box said, which is card me and then, and then, you know, get a signature. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's tricky because what we're told is that the three tier system is, is here to keep us safe. And uh, I think that's a, a really warm and fuzzy way to look at it. I mean, it's nice to know that, that, uh, you know, big daddy government is here uh, to keep uh, little Eric safe here in, in his little condo in DC. Uh, it's it's a, it's a really a romantic way to think of the relationship between the government and and oneself, but uh, I, I think just the the externalities of it are are just very different. Um, and I I think you know the example that you just gave with the the people being allowed to receive wine but not beer and spirits is like is is a particularly compelling one to look at because all right you've got wine, I would consider a bottle of wine and a six pack to be a roughly equivalent amount of alcohol 
And so what is it? What's the difference between the bottle of wine and then the six pack of beer? And well, we certainly know what the difference is between the bottle of spirits and those other two. Obviously, the spirits are much more potent, which I, which I think is why in the spirit space, there's a particular um, enthusiasm or uh, amount of alarm placed around the the legislation because spirits are just more potent than wine or beer. You have to drink less of them to get a similar effect. And I think that's what makes people nervous and edgy. And when people are nervous and edgy like that, you tend to get rules that make less sense, right? They're 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 trying to do something. They're trying to put a band-aid fix on something that clearly w won't like that band-aid won't hold that fix, but just seeing that band-aid there makes them happier about it because of that implied or uh, kind of uh, sort of imagined potency. Um, yeah. 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 No, I think you hit you on a couple really important points there. The the first that you mentioned is is the the main pushback that has already uh, arisen with with delivery and uh, in, in shipment alcohol has uh, been concerns about underage access to alcohol. Um, it what I try to tell people you know there has been some high profile cases of that happening, not just anecdotal ones. There's been some states that have uh, found uh, a, a more of a, a systemic level similar things happening to what you just mentioned. Packages being left or ID not being checked. I think that the tricky thing is that a lot of um, companies and um, uh, uh, entities that didn't have this power a you know month or two ago all of a sudden do, and it's rolling it out uh, in the middle of a of a pandemic, and it hasn't been smooth all the time. Uh, I do think that the technology is ultimately there, uh, and it's going to just take more time and internal compliance procedures inputted by the companies that are doing the delivering it to to figure it out. I think ultimately it's very conceivable we can get to a space, and I think in many places when it's done right, we're already in that space where you could have better compliance clients actually with with delivery just because you're using technology that will involve scanning again you need to make sure that people are actually doing that but if you do do that that's oftentimes much better than my local gas station here you know God love them, but I can go there oftentimes and they don't even ask me for anything. Or if they do, it's a really cursory look, you know, at it. They're not scanning anything or, like, or going through any kind of a, uh, a systematic process. So uh, I, I do think that's a, a, a real thing that people need to think about. I think that ultimately the technology is there and there needs to be continued emphasis on just making sure that the internal compliance actually happens, that it that it is happening and that there isn't opportunities for it, for it to, uh, to happen more. Um, and, and then, you know, I think you're right. There is also this, uh, the reason that we have wine shipment is because the wineries uh, started becoming a, a bigger entity and in, in earlier on in the 70s and 80s before the, the brew pub revolution happens and they did a better job of, uh, you know, people started vacationing to California and then wanted that wine shipped back to them in uh, Indiana or wherever they might live. And, and they just did a better job earlier on of, of kind of making that push. And they really, as an industry, really spent time trying to get those laws changed at, at a state level. And beer and spirits just haven't done that as much. Um, and, and I think that they're now realizing the benefits uh, from that. They like, you know, people that are huge enthusiasts of of, of craft beer, for example, often will go to, uh, you know, Vermont, say we, you know, we're, uh, I live in Virginia, I go to Vermont. Um, and you know, I, I might be a, 
not every consumer might be like me, but, uh, you know, it might be a, 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 not a narrow band, but a very deep band of a passionate consumer. I might go there and say, I want, you know, six cases of, uh, some type of, uh, of IPA that I really like and not being able to get that shipped to my door, I think is, uh, something that more people that are, uh, interested in, in craft alcohol will, will want that capability. And then, and then your last point, just again, you, you brought up myriad, uh, uh, really good, uh, things was the distinction between distilled spirits and, uh, and, and wine and beer. And I do think that that is uh, something that, again, we referenced earlier, really traces back to early uh, uh, in America. There uh, was a, a kind of attempt to distinguish between beer and wine early on in the temperance movement and then uh, hard spirits. Um, and, you know, there's no doubt that uh, distilled spirits can be, you know, very potent. Um, I think that uh, some of the ways that uh, people want to enjoy them now, though, is, is like to go cocktails has, uh, changed a little bit the way that it's consumed uh, in the marketplace. Um, there was certainly a time in the 1800s where people uh, were just drinking it straight uh, most often. Um, but but I think that uh, the ways in which it's been consumed has changed, which I think raises the question of maybe the way that it, it's treated should also uh, be changed. Um, and again, if you're getting a, a bottle of whiskey delivered to your door, you know, you're not drinking it all at one time necessarily. You're going to enjoy that over, at least if you're anything like me, the, the bottle of whiskey lasts, you know, much longer than the six pack of, of craft beer. But no, those are all important points and very motivating concerns that the regulators and, and people have. I think they're all tractable issues, but uh, they're, they're ones that need to be thought through by the industry and they need to have good answers uh, uh, for those things uh, and, and to be able to, to convince people that this is an appropriate thing to, to update and reform. Yeah, totally. Uh, well, it's kind of put uh, appropriate ending on this discussion of legislation and sort of like, like you say, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, I, I'd I'd wonder if if you can maybe speak to what we can do to make progress on this because you know we we've spoken we've spoken a little bit about uh you know what distillers guilds or craft beer associations can do as organizations but is there anything that we as consumers can do um and and even if that's just sort of changing the way we think about things and creating a different culture I mean I, I'm not quite sure what what are your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I think that um, it, it is, first of all, it starts with how you think about it. Um, that, that's really important. And, you know, I am aware that when people go to the voting booth, they are voting on a whole host of issues. You know, the um, uh, beverage alcohol and how it's regulated uh, may not always be number one, although in local elections, oftentimes it, it can be very important. Um, it's important to distinguish between the different types of uh, elections and what's being voted on. But I think that just getting in the, uh, you know, if you have a local brewery that you really like, do what I did. They're very willing to talk about. Uh, and most of them are very, if it's small enough, they're very approachable. You can talk to the staff there, whoever I almost, every time I go and get a beer somewhere, I do and ask them what's, what's making their life difficult. What's, what's a frustrating thing for them. And if, if they're, if they're doing things that you enjoy in your community and they're a positive presence, then, you know, yeah, if you, if you meet a, a candidate or something for office when they're canvassing, you know, be a bug in the ear and say, hey, you know, I know that you've got a lot of other things you're thinking about, but this is, uh, you know, a business that helps us. And I think that if you can frame it as, um, you know, a benefit to the community and, uh, you know, is, is another local business that is a good thing that's helping your community, I think that that raises uh, interest among, among the legislative people. That's where most of the changes have come for people that realizing that, hey, like this industry is like really good for our state overall. You know, there's some things that need to be managed and, and regulated with it. But overall, this is a really good thing. And we should kind of uh, liberalize uh, uh, the marketplace to help them grow. So, yeah, I think that it's, 
it's uh, it's kind of an old fashioned answer, but I think that uh, it was part of the reason why I, I wrote the book that I did and uh, and, and did a little uh, a podcast around it is just to get people to think more about it because that's always the first step when you start to try to uh, get policy change uh, enacted. Um, and I think it's a, it's a grassroots answer, but I think ultimately it's the one that in the places that there's been these reforms, it's been people doing that and starting to kind of emphasize the benefits uh, of, of uh, craft spirits and craft uh, alcohol to, to their communities and just convincing the people that are in power that that's a real thing. Yeah. Plus, what kind of place do you want to live in? Do you want to live in a place where there's uh, reasonable laws and you can enjoy the stuff you like? Or do you want to live in a place where you can't do that? I mean, you know, just because you de facto happen to live in a place where you can't do that doesn't mean you have to moving forward. You know, you, you can make changes and uh, decisions that influence that. Uh, one good resource that I do want to list um, kind of goes back to uh, my interview with Chris Swanger of the uh, Distilled Spirits Council of the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they have a very easy, if you sign up for their for their newsletter, um, you, you input information like your um, like where you live. And so they, they can customize their messaging to you and normally I, I'm not a bit like I hate people giving people my email address. But what happens is uh, with the Distilled Spirits Council, I get an email when there's something on the chopping block or something on on the legislative table um, where lobbying could be done. And uh, so they send me an email. They click, I click a button and they say, oh, uh, well, here's a template that we can send to your representative, Eleanor Holmes Norton. And uh, here's the, here's the, what's on the table for voting. And, um, you know, here's a template. Do you want to change anything? Okay, great. And you just click submit. And then um, it shoots that email right off to her and her staff. And then there's also, which is, which is kind of cool, the option to tweet at her. So you can actually even input your social media handle and they can kind of generate a tweet for you. Uh, again, not something that everybody's going to be into, but personally, I like the opportunity to when there's something in my jurisdiction that I'm not aware of because I'm not sitting here like thinking about what politicians are doing all day every day. So it's nice to have that little reminder pop into my inbox. So I do highly recommend, even though I'm very averse to giving out my email, if there's one place that you're gonna give your email to if you wanna make an impact, Distilled Spirits Council of the United States, also known as Discus, um, really good tool for uh, trying to affect change at a, at a grassroots level. Yep. No, absolutely. Distilled Spirits, uh, the council does a great job with it. Um, and, uh, you know, the uh, beer and wine uh, industry obviously have have their parallels uh, as well. And, and there's a lot of state, you know, uh, craft brewing guilds and stuff now that are very active in this. Uh, if you want to know what's happening at your state level, oftentimes you can you can uh, reach out to some of the individual chapters of, of those organizations. But yeah, you're right. I mean, they're the ones that live it. So they're, they're the ones that are tracking it most uh, systematically. And I think there's finally more of that infrastructure in place. Um, and the internet it really helps spread that information now for for people that want to learn more about it and, uh, and and find a way to to do something. Very much so. Um, are there is there any online resource that has a good compilation of laws? Like I'm thinking specifically alcohol shipping laws. This is something that I'm very concerned about. I actually have a call about this with with uh, somebody that I'm working with later on today, and I. I want to know where to go to finally like wrap my head around where you can ship, who can ship, who can receive. Is there anything like that out there? There's a couple uh, different, uh, there's, there's I think a compliance company or two. I'm not going to be able to remember the names off the top of my head. Um, uh, and also the National Council of State Legislatures has uh, put together a, a list. I'm not sure how uh, current 
uh, it is because the stuff changes um, on it. So there is several things. One of the projects I'm actually working on, which has gotten a little bit <laughs> delayed with with book and podcast project, is a uh, paper on alcohol shipping and transportation. And one of the things I want to do, at least as best as can be done with the current uh, information available, which is not uh, as comprehensive as it should be, is kind of do a list of the of the different states that do allow uh, interstate shipment of, of beer and, and spirits and wine um, and just kind of put it in like a table or a map format that people can uh, digest. But to answer your question, there's not, you know, it's not as simple, unfortunately, as like hopping on Google and typing in, you know, what state's going to, uh, but if you do spend some time poking around, you can, you can find that. I are a, a, a weekly newsletter and website, drinksreform.org. Uh, there's a, a way that you can actually um, uh, uh, submit questions to us and to me basically. Um, and, and I would be glad to send anyone some of the links that I found over the years. There's three or four of them that if you put together can give you a little bit of a com- composite picture. But again, this stuff changes uh, a lot. I don't, I haven't been able to find any of them that I feel are totally comprehensive. So, yeah, well, that's obviously a, a great case for the work that you're doing in this space and definitely keep us updated because, you know, what we can do is uh, as you publish those resources, if you ping me with it, then I can update the show notes page and we can, you know, keep the show notes page for this episode as a good resource as sort of like a, a little bit of a link hub or a directory for people who, who are interested in that sort of thing. So um, maybe you and cool. I can work together uh, after this recording to make sure that the show notes page reflects all that. And, um, you know, I, yeah. I'd really love to make it a resource for people because obviously you know i'm sitting here interviewing you you don't have all the answers i have even fewer of the answers and uh you know mm-hmm. the best the best that we can do is like you said create some sort of composite picture that from multiple different perspectives gives us a holistic view or as much of a holistic view as possible of this space. So we'll plan to do that over on the show notes page at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast and um Aside from that, let's talk about uh, the the project you're doing with Greg. Yeah, uh, so w- uh, we we uh, decided to do a, a limited run. Uh, it's going to be five episodes, uh, narrative style uh, podcast. Uh, each episode is not uh, terribly long. It's about 20, 15, 20 minutes. Um, it's called The Right to Drink, and it, it basically is a little bit of a preview of, of the book uh, in, in, in the sense that it kind of picks a couple different areas of uh, alcohol uh, regulation and talks about them in a, a fun and accessible way. So, you know, for example, we did one on uh, the whole world of regulating uh, uh, beer labels and what you can and cannot say on a, a beer label. We're doing one on the war on happy hour, which we'll touch upon uh, Massachusetts as we referenced. Uh, we're also doing one on shipping uh, rules um, and how that's changing right now. So what we tried to do with each each of these little uh, episodes is match one person in the industry with one person that's kind of a legal or regulatory expert. Uh, our first one, we, we matched a, a distiller in Virginia with actually a, a former a liquor regulator in Michigan um, uh, who's, who's very uh, reform-minded about uh, about alcohol rules, but was able to talk about, you know, being in the regulator's chair and what that was like. Uh, but but yeah, we, we make it fun and we make it a story that I think people can follow along with and be interested in. Um, and again, try not to just have a, you know, a two-hour lecture or something like that on, you know, the the alcohol space, but, but make... Uh, make it a little bit of a, a preview for people so they can kind of get a lay of the land quickly uh, in an accessible format that, that is easy to understand and try to, you know, the alcohol spaces we just, you know, we're talking about, it's got so much jargon in it, like three-tiered system and, you know, COLA approval for labels and stuff like that. So we really try to break that down in a way that 
it, people can actually understand is not just this like indecipherable legalese. Uh, so I think it's really fun. It came out really cool. Uh, uh, Greg is a, a incredible producer and, and, and co-host of a couple uh, drinks podcasts himself and uh, working with him was really great because I think we, we put a fun product that combined uh, a lot of, uh, uh, of things that will interest the drinks community and then also a lot of things that will interest kind of the uh, nerdy policy community. I think it's a cool synthesis of those two things. Yeah, it sounds like it. Well, certainly when that when that gets released, send us those links. We'll include that uh, in all the resources on the show notes page. And if anybody wants to um, head over and check out my interview with Greg, uh, you can just search for the uh, the Ghost of Cocktail Future. I think it was somewhere in the uh, 120s or 130s, maybe early 140s of, of, of our episodes, if you want to search for that. Um, great guy, great voice for radio. Um, really sort of uh, smooth and no interruptives and uh, all that. So a great listen. Yeah, he. Uh, it was funny. I, I listened uh, when when we were kind of interviewing different producers. He was one of them, and I listened to some of his stuff. And I was like, man, the only problem is that he's so good <laughs> in his uh, speaking that I was like, I'm never going to live up to this. Uh, but yeah. he's been great and making me sound better than I am. So he's he's been fun to work with. Nice. Great. Well, uh, thanks so much, Jarrett, for um, for walking through all these legislations with me. Uh, do you have a couple minutes for some lightning round questions? Yeah, let's do it. That'd be fun. All right. First question, what's your favorite cocktail? And if you don't have a favorite of all time, what's something you've most recently fallen in love with? Yeah, this is a great one. I um, I love all the classics, but I would probably pick a, a fun one that I put in my book that uh, I love the uh, Caipiana, the uh, Brazilian national drink with the cachaça for those that aren't uh, familiar. Um, my uh, my wife's family is uh, Brazilian, so they, they got me drinking those and I combine it with a little bit of a ginger liqueur in it and a ginger beer to kind of make it even a, a brighter, kind of more... Um, uh, a refreshing drink. Um, so it's ginger caipiana that, that that's, I, I love that because it's such a great summer drink. I've been drinking a lot during uh, quarantine in my, in my backyard here this summer. So it's been on my mind. Uh, I haven't quite moved into to fall cocktails, so it changes seasonally, but, but yeah, I, I love caipianas and that's been what I've, uh, different spins of them I've been kicking on recently. You should uh, look for an article called Plato and Aristotle Walk Into a Bar. It's by David Wondrich on the Daily Beast. And it's a really cool uh, comparison of the, I believe, the, yeah, the Caipirinha, the Tea Punch, and the Daiquiri and kind of like their respective roles and, and mm -hmm. the very nuanced ways that all three of these drinks, which are basically just rum sours, there's a lot of nuance in the way that you assemble these across cultures. And he kind of uh, uses this as a way to talk about a platonic approach to cocktails and more of an Aristotelian approach to cocktails, which actually may be an interesting way to think about um, legislation as well. Do we, are we taking a ground up approach to legislation or a top down approach? So you might want to check that out. I think it's it'll give you at least a, a cool lens to look at that drink. Um, yeah. So um, next question, if you were a cocktail ingredient, what would you be and why? Uh, I actually probably would pick uh, bitters. Um, I, uh, I find them uh, fascinating. They can change uh, the complexity of a drink so quickly and so dramatically with such little amount <laughs> of actual liquid. Uh, so I've always thought they're a blast. They also have their roots uh, very far back in, in history uh, and, and you know even, even into the prohibition and pre-prohibition era. So I, I love historical stuff. So I would pick bitters for sure. Nice. Uh, big bitters guy myself. Uh, very nice. If you could have a cocktail with anyone in the world, past or present, who would it be? Where would you go? What would you drink? Just kind of paint us a picture. 
Yeah, this is a, a great one. I saw you send this over. I have some answers of just kind of like family stuff, but uh, in the interest of, of kind of picking something that that's probably uh, accessible to people, I, I thought it would uh, be really neat to be uh, in the room when uh, uh, Churchill and uh, uh, FDR and Stalin were kind of originally meeting in World War II. They had a, a famous dinner party. Uh, before then, they weren't really getting along very well, and they had a famous dinner party that involved many Bloody Marys and scotch and uh, all different things for Churchill's birthday, and it really kind of forged an alliance between them and, and World War II, which ended up being pretty pivotal, uh, obviously, for uh, anyone that's read the history of World War II. But uh, I feel like being able to be in that room and uh, see that all unfold uh, and have uh, drinks with uh, with those types of people would, would have been a blast. So yeah, I'd, I'd pick probably some historical moment like that probably. Yeah, that's interesting. We're, we're doing a series on the Bloody Mary. So I might have to look into that as as like a, uh, you know, the moment the Bloody the Bloody Mary helped change history. Um, very yeah. cool. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what's a common or traditional cocktail ingredient that you've never tasted and why? Oh man, uh, that, that is a that is a great question. Um, and I actually remember you sending this over and I was going to try to think of a really good answer of it. I, it's probably some probably some kind of um, liqueur that uh, I'm, I'm not thinking of right now that's uh, that I've seen written a bunch of times and haven't you know either bought for one reason or another or, or had uh, in my house um, that uh, that's a good question well actually you know what I'll give you an easy answer this is fun uh, I am not a, a dirty martini guy I don't like olive juice uh, in uh, cocktails so I, I would probably go with something simple like that I've actually I've had gin martinis and I like those but I don't know if I've ever had olive juice or brine uh in in any kind of a cocktail that i'm aware of so yeah that, i guess that's the fun easy answer <laughs> yeah well, martinis are very personal it, it it's it makes complete sense you know once you've got your once you've got your martini that's sort of like you know picking your pokemon at the beginning of the game it's like once you've got your martini that's your martini you're stuck with that martini and the rest of the martinis <laughs> are just not going to look as good to you so i totally get it um Wrapping up here, what's uh, an unusual or controversial view or belief that you hold in the spirits or cocktail space? I, I think that um, I think we mentioned this already, so this might be a little bit of a of a cop out answer. But I think that uh, in modern times, uh, craft alcohol has been a tremendous societal good on net uh, for our country. I think a lot of people. Uh, still view alcohol historically, even if they in, in personally enjoy it, as something that has often been deleterious to society. Uh, and it has been, uh, unquestionably, throughout certain parts of history. Uh, but I, I just think that the recent story that I, I find inspiring motivates a lot of my work of the last several decades is it's been a real a force for good. Um, you know, the, the alcohol industry uh, in recent years has created some of the most manufacturing jobs of any industry. Everyone loves, you know, blue collar manufacturing jobs and, you know, that you don't need an advanced degree for and alcohol's done that. And everyone loves, you know, uh, talks about the, the deterioration of local communities and how we don't have people coming together to, to do things together. And, you know, breweries are one of the great examples of local businesses that do that. They're behind almost, you know, every charity drive that you see around town, at least in small towns like mine. So uh, they, they've just created wonderful community hubs and, uh, and, and good jobs for people. And, and they're fun places. Uh, they, they, they make people happy at the end of the day. So I'd, 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 I don't know if that's a, a cop-out answer based on everything we talked about today, but I, I feel like it, it, I've been interested in trying to kind of resuscitate the, the image of, of the alcohol space because I think it's really special what's happened the, the last couple of decades. And, it, and it's often something that, that gets overlooked. So. Yeah, you're right. I think it is very easy. You know, it's obviously very easy to vilify. It's a substance, right? And, uh, 
and and so it's very easy for us to uh, to to point at a substance and say bad rather than to point at at somebody who who drinks that substance and, and say bad. It's it's just easier to uh, to vilify the substance and and uh, in, instead of doing the hard or potentially messy work of creating a space in which that substance can be enjoyed safely, responsibly, etc. So you know my takeaways from this conversation really are, are um, pay attention uh, when you see something that seems weird or silly, it's probably because that thing is weird or silly. Like it's, it, it might not be in your head. Uh, don't necessarily assume that the people who put these things together did it A, in your best interest, B, in the best interests of the people that they were regulating, uh, and C, certainly don't assume that really unhealthy, uh, perverse incentives and microclimates haven't somehow arisen out of those laws. Those are my big takeaways for this. Um, they really are out to get us, uh, you know, so conspiracy folks out there, get on board, give me some, give me some of your, you know, kind of, uh, conspiracy enthusiasm and, and apply that to the, uh, to the, to the spirit space where actually, you know, there, there are some, some, some weird things, uh, at, at play right now. So, um, I'm, I appreciate your time. Thank you for, you know, putting out this, uh, excellent book. Can, can you, tell everyone since since this has just been released uh where can they go to uh to get a copy of their book and 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 jared how can they connect with you uh personally in the digital space yeah uh, well i appreciate very much you having me um listen to uh, uh modern bar card for a long time so it's a r- real pleasure to be on here but um but yeah uh my book uh, give me liberty and give me a drink uh really is available it's pretty easy any any major um or independent uh, bookstores or place that you buy books online or in person you can find it uh easily um you know googling will bring you up all all the different options um as far as uh connecting uh, with me, I uh, mentioned that that we run a, a website uh, that kind of tracks different alcohol reform efforts around the country called drinksreform.org. Uh, you can you can get at me that way. Um, follow along our newsletter if this is the kind of topic you're interested in. Um, and, and then also I'm on, uh, you know, social media as well. Uh, uh, being a policy guy, unfortunately, uh, are, I'm often found on Twitter uh, where I try not to spend my time yelling at everyone like everyone else does on Twitter. Um, but uh, yeah, just uh, at my name, Jared Dieterle, I'm, I'm hanging out there and also on, on Instagram too. So yeah, no, I'd, I'd, any of those ways are ways to get in touch with me. I'd, I love hearing from people that are interested in, in this topic and some of the most uh, fruitful things I've learned have been just from people reaching out to me and, and wanting to chat about it. So I'd, I'd, I always like learning things. So absolutely. Well, um, let, let's, uh, take that as a cue to keep the conversation going listeners. Uh, so you can always reach out to us. You can reach out to Jarrett. Um, we are very interested in the way that things are developing, um, not just out of, uh, pure curiosity. Of course there's that, but also because, you know, this is a, this is a great industry that's, that's being threatened just like so many other industries uh, are being threatened right now. And we want to be, we want to be here on the front lines, making sure that, that we're protecting the best interests of the people uh, who bring delicious flavors into our lives. And I can't think of a, a less partisan, uh, more uh, pure thing to want to do just out of pure selfishness for your taste buds. So if you can get behind that, we don't care who you are, what you what you support otherwise, as long as you're here to uh, to save the spirits, uh, I think I think we're happy to have you as part of our community. Definitely, yeah, no, well well put, yeah, it's a, it's a broad tent, so come on in. All right, Jarrett, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Appreciate it much, thank you.
Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Carts. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was produced by Edie Frederick with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, alcohol legislation insights by Jarrett Dieterly, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2020.